Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the studio today is Julian Adams, who grew up in Columbia. Uh, he's a producer, and his company is Solar Film Works, which he and his father founded. He's got a new movie that's coming out about an unknown American hero, or I should say relatively unknown American hero. And 12 years ago, Julian was on the journal with his first film, which was then called Strike the Tent. It's now called The Last Confederate. But welcome back to the journal, Julian. Thank you for having me. Glad to be back. You grew up in Columbia, went to the University of the South, and you ended up in Hollywood as a producer, an actor. How did all that come about? Well, it was a long road, as, as these things <laughs> tend to be. I was living in Columbia, um, interested in film while I was in graduate school in Atlanta. I went to Georgia Tech for architecture after Sewanee. And I began to tinker with films to work on the weekends and to write things and come up with ideas as people who are interested in film tend to do. And in this day and age, you can you can make a film career um, without, you know, sort of formally being in the film world. So. It was a weekend endeavor and something I was interested in. So as as time went on, it um, developed a little more. My father and I sat down with a great family idea and, and wrote this story of his great-grandfather, who was a Confederate cavalryman who married a northern girl. Those are my father's great-grandparents. That was what it was the genesis of The Last Confederate, what uh, used to be known as Strike the Ten on the film festival circuit. You won Sundance, didn't you? you? No, we well, we went to uh, 15 or 16 different festivals and won, I think, 10 or 11 awards. It was, you know, we had we had some very nice, you know, success with it, but it was a good entree into uh, the world. We had a great, you know, the cast was. You know, uh, Amy Redford was in it, and some, you know... Uh, Mickey Rooney. Mickey Rooney was in it, and Tippi Hedren, and some really fine actors, and... Um, and your mom. And my mom. And my dad. And you. And me. <laughs> <laughs> and so, well, it's really a family affair. I mean, everybody uh, contributed to the writing and the storytelling. I mean, we were telling a family story, and we shot it on family land, and, and all those things. And it was... But it was a, a very, you know, it was a, a love story set against the backdrop of the of the war. Um, you know, sure it can be categorized as a as a civil war movie, but really it was a love story. You know, um, and through the festival circuit, you know, sort of be, that's actually where I met, uh, who became my producing partner and the director of the current film we just finished, The Last Full Measure, um, which is obviously a Vietnam film, and we'll we'll get to that. But through that festival tour was that's what you know, propelled me into other films. And these things, you know, if you if you track your own life story, it you know may seem organized on paper, but these things are never very organized. I mean, film is a very disorganized, you know, artistic endeavor. It's it's a creative endeavor that, you know, merges with a financial endeavor and those things collide as as things go along trying to get films made and you know, it's not like, you know, a, a lot of, you know, jobs or careers or um, trades in life. It, it is a very, um, it's, a, it's a very, I mean, I don't know if treacherous is, is the right word. It's rewarding creatively, but it is a difficult uh, course to navigate. And so you have to, you have to understand when you watch filmmakers progress and any filmmaker progress. And you look at, you know, a television show you may love or you look at, you know, a filmmaker you may love. You look at Quentin Tarantino. You look at anyone you know, you look at great filmmakers in history, they all went through, um, you look at Orson Welles, he's a perfect example of somebody who, you know, was the greatest filmmaker in the world, but then ended up struggling to get movies made. It's never a predictable path. And so um, if you sew together the series of films I've made over the years uh, in music videos and commercials and whatnot, it it can seem like a you know a body of work that seems hemmed together pretty well, but it really was put together by hook or by crook. <laughs> you know, but. Well, well there, there are two different tracks here. One is Silver Film Works, of which you're a producer, but you're also an actor. I mean, that, sure. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about your filmography. What, what are the films you've been in? Well, I'm, I'm in the last full measure. I was in uh, another film I produced called Phantom with Ed Harris and David Duchovny, and a great another. Um, story based on a true story. Uh, and we'll talk about that one, too. Yeah. It was based on the K-129, the Russian submarine that went down to the Pacific. Um, and it was really a you know a fascinating story in the sense of basically what was perceived as a mutiny 
by the captain and his crew against the KGB who are looking to fire a, a missile at Hawaii to, as a false flag to make it to make the Americans, to make us think that the Chinese um, were starting the Third World War. This was a big event in the late 60s, early 70s, maybe it was in 70 or so. We built a film around that idea, and Ed Harris plays the captain, and David Duchovny plays the uh, KGB officer. Um, so that was another film that was fascinating. We shot the whole thing on a Russian submarine, and, and it was a fascinating story, but we built, because we really don't know what happened with the submarine, we know that it blew up. But Where was the the film filmed? Where did you? San Diego. Okay, yeah. okay, so there was the, you, you, you didn't go to Irkutsk or, no. or you know. <laughs> no, we, <laughs> we right. I don't want to spoil the, the, you know, spoil the film in a way, but no, we shot it on a real Russian submarine that's docked um, in the Maritime Museum in San Diego. So, but it, it, that was a film that developed in an odd way. We were in the process of getting the last full measure made, which is I've been working on since 2006. Since the last time you and I sat down, I was involved in the current film we are we just finished. It's coming out in a few months. But during that time period, I've made other movies, including Phantom. But we did that while in the process of making. We were so we've been working on this current film, and in that process of making other movies, that's how it works. You. You you know you put a lot of horses on the track and you you don't know who's going to get to the to the end first. You just have to run them all and see what happens. It's a it's a long arduous process with any film. Some you know from from beginning to the end of a given film can be a short run, but some like this one, which I believe is a great film that needed to be made, the last full measure. You have to look at it as a marathon. People believe they they see a story about you know. Something come up and they see an article in the New York Times or where have you, and they think that would make a great movie. And then you, someone buys the rights and they progress forward. It could be twenty years later when it's made into a movie. That's the you have to be prepared for that arc of work. It's going to take a long time. So, Phantom was a shorter run. We came up with the idea and executed the film. I mean, had it written and executed the film in a matter of you know, I guess three or four years. That was an anomaly. The last full measure is really more of. The normal, the normal process that which is you know. Okay, you say you started work on that in in two thousand and six. Is right. that is that when you discovered our hero or not? Well, so my producing partner and the director of the film, Todd Robinson. So okay. Todd wrote a movie called White Squall that Ridley Scott directed, and he's written a lot of bigger films. He's he's been around a long time doing excellent work. So he saw The Last Confederate at, the, at a festival in Ta- Lake Tahoe. So we sat down, and he told me about The Last Full Measure and about William Pitsenbarger, who is the, obviously the, the hero of our story. He had been working on the, the script since the year 2000 when Pitsenbarger was given the medal. And I know I'm giving you a lot of information kind of out of order. But anyway, we met at this festival. He told me the story of Pitsenbarger, so he's working on this film. At that time, the film was already making progress. But as these things can ebb and flow, sometimes it takes, you know, it takes time to maneuver it to, into the gate of actually being shot, which took us a long time. So we discussed the film. And I said, of course, I'd love to be a part of it. We began working together, made a documentary, began making some videos and some other, you know, pro- doing some other projects together. So is, is that how Solar Filmworks came into existence? No, that was in, in, in the very beginning. We, okay. we had, we formed that to make The Last Confederate. So that was... So I began, you know, partnering with him and with other people on these other projects to produce other films. And so it's, you know, you know, it was um, the genesis of it was for the film we made, but it has um, evolved into, you know, being a part of other bigger films. Because as you go, you hope your films get bigger and the, you know, the scope widens and you can bring in bigger actors. And sometimes it, sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't. But um but as far as the the development of this story and my involvement in it, it began when they had they had already begun the process. But that process, you know, has taken a long time. Thankfully, we've gotten it done finally, and and here we are, you know, set to be released by Lionsgate, um, you know, in a couple of months. So it's it's been a rewarding, you know, last year, but a, a you know, a, you know. A, taxing few years before that. All right, so when you first got it in 2006, was there already a script? Yes, yeah. So he'd written the script. He had already developed the relationships with um, the veterans and, and with whom we're friendly, we're friends. I mean, we've I've been working with these guys for over a decade now. Mm-hmm. The men of, who fought in the battle, the men of Charlie Company and the men of, of the Benoit Eagles, which is the Air Force uh, group of veterans, um, 
who included Pittsburgh's helicopter pilot and his crew members um, and, and the men on the ground of Charlie Company. These are, these are, you know, American heroes. These guys fought in one of the worst battles of the Vietnam War and survived it. And so we owed it to them to get the story told. We owed it, and, and they had a debt of gratitude to Pitsenbarger, who, who gave his life for them. So that was what held this together, was, was our dedication to them and their dedication to him. He was an only child, and, and his family deserved it. Well, let's talk a little bit about William Pitsenbarger. Here's how I was introduced to William Pitsenbarger. As you said, he, he may be unknown to people, but after this film comes out, he will be known, and as he should be. He was an only child. He was 22, I think, at the time of his death in 1966. His father um, died a few months after he got the medal. He finally got his son the Medal of Honor. Now, you know, keep in mind that in, in the film, Christopher Plummer plays his father. Um, and, and, he is, and he does a great service in, in that, in that we needed an actor of that caliber to carry off that role because it's central to the story. So Pittsburgh was an Air Force pararescue jumper. And if you know anything about the PJs in the Air Force, they are, a, they are the elite of, of the Air Force. They're medics. They're obviously combat soldiers. And anyone who knows, knows the Air Force PJs knows that they are a force to be reckoned with. So they, you know, he jumped out of a helicopter into one of the most ferocious attacks in the Vietnam War. Charlie Company of the 16th Infantry uh, the Big Red One, as people know it. So Charlie Company had about 134 men, I believe, and they were ambushed by maybe seven or 800 North Vietnamese and Viet Cong. What, this is 1966. 66. So th- this is very early in the war. Right. Battle of Zakam Mai is the, the battle. The operation was Operation Abilene. So Charlie Company was sent in, sent in to lure uh, the Viet Cong out and to it was Easter Sunday they had had Viet Cong probing their positions they were having a church service on Easter Sunday and I mm-hmm. and I've I've had hundreds of conversations with them about that day and how the battle began Phil Hall was was one of the men in that battle and and he he and I've had a thousand conversations about it and Ken Alderson who was one of the lieutenants and Johnny Libs I know these guys well Fred Navarro the guys who were all wounded and survived the battle they were having church service on Easter Sunday they were attacked by uh, probing a few uh, Viet Cong, and they killed a few of them, and then they followed them into the jungle. And they were ordered to go in and, and lure out the larger force. What they didn't know is how many men were waiting on them and how many men were strapped in the trees with heavy caliber machine guns. So once they got in, they were hit by um, an unbelievable amount of fire. And they, um, as you might guess, they, you know, circled the wagon and fought, you know, through the night. In, in terms of what Pittsburgh, when he was called into the action, the Army at the time, Hueys didn't have winches. So the, the Huskies, the helicopters that the, that the uh, Air Force crews were running, they had winches. They could drop through a triple canopy jungle to the ground to try to pull men out. But obviously that was dangerous in the middle of a battle with a thousand people firing machine guns. One of the Huskies was shot up and... Pittsburgh's Husky, Hal Salem was his pilot, and Hal was a very close friend. I worked with him for a decade, and he died before we were, before he knew the movie was being shot. He was an amazing man. And um, so Hal told me the story about he, he tried to stop Pittsburgh from going down uh, into the middle of the battle. I mean, imagine voluntarily he, you know, lowering yourself into the middle of a thousand machine guns going off. That was what he did. And Fred Navarro and Phil Hall and the guys on the ground, they watched him come down. He was wearing a white helmet, which is what PJs wore at the time, dropped through the middle of this and, you know, onslaught of machine gun fire. And, and they said he was in, just as calm as you could be. And there were dozens of men already wounded or dead at the time. In that you know, moment, Pittsburgh knew what he was doing. He understood that when Hal Salem, his chopper pilot, told me, he said, when Pittsburgh made the decision to go down and stay, he knew that was probably the the last day of his life. Um, so Hal tried to get him to stay on the chopper. So did um, so did his other crew members, and he refused to. He waved the helicopter off and let his line up. They couldn't pull men through that. It was impossible to get the, the litter through that triple canopy jungle. So he stayed on the ground and fought alongside these men he'd never met. 
Now, keep in mind, I mean, this is an Air Force guy dropping into a battle with with the Charlie Company of the Big Red One, and they told him that well, you know they said, "What are you doing here? What you know you can get out of here." And he voluntarily stayed on the ground and fought through the night with them, triaged, you know, helped circle the wagon, triaged the men, killed countless enemy, and was killed in the process. So his story was something that. Um, so when Todd Robinson was making the rounds of hearing about this story, he everywhere he went talking to, you know, the PJs and the Air Force, and he heard this story. Everybody said, you heard the story of William Pitsenbarger. So he he developed this script, but really based it around um, what these men had told him, the veterans and the survivors and, and uh, what they had told them. So by the time I came into the picture, we were sort of figuring out what we wanted to do together in terms of trying to help propel this movie forward. Putting a movie together is very difficult in terms of maintaining a, a cast, maintaining your the elements to keep the movie financially, you know, mobilized. Keeping those cast members attached as time goes on, because that can change at any moment. You can have five people attached, but if you wait six months or you wait two months or a year, well, they're busy with other things. They're doing other movies. They go into a TV show. It's holding all all of that sand in your hand as you run across the, the beach. Uh, uh, okay. <laughs> You've already, you know, Christopher Plummer. You've got, you've got that sand. What year are we talking about now? It changed as time went on. Ed, Ed Harris, because we just made a movie with Ed. And Ed is a wonderful guy and a friend, and obviously, an iconic actor. He is, he is the kind of actor who, who draws other actors into a film. And we were lucky to have his support. And and so guys like that who had been. We had, you know, we had other actors in the film who ended up not being in the film, but ultimately. Um, as you can see the cast list, I mean, you know, we have Samuel L. Jackson, Ed Harris, William Hurt, Christopher Plummer, Peter Fonda, Amy Madigan, um, Sebastian, Sebastian Stan, Stan uh, Jeremy Irvine, uh, Bradley Whitford, uh, you know, uh, Diane Ladd. So once you, if you can bring actors, you know, who have that gravitas and who, who are respected universally, and Ed is one of those guys, as all these people are, you know, that begins to gather momentum, and then you can build a film on that. And that's saying that's much easier than it truly is. You know, you can, you because the mechanism can fall apart in the process of trying to move it forward. Anyway, but we were lucky, and it finally gathered the steam it needed in the right uh, time. You know, time frame, and it all came together. All right, give me a date. It's all it's all together. When are, when are we talking? 2014, 2015? No, 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 no. Not till the last minute. We shot it, you know, a year a year ago. It was coming together at the last minute. That's always the case. You never know. You never know. It could fall apart five minutes before you roll film. That's just the way it happens. So you've got over ten years before, from the time oh, yeah. you first got interested in it till you actually started shooting. That's right. Yeah. So when I had my first conversation with Todd Robinson, I was presenting the Last Confederate at the Tahoe Film Festival. And he came up to me and said, would you like to be in this Vietnam movie? Twelve years later, I'm shooting the scene that he's talking about. So, yeah, I mean, so think about that arc. Twelve years from the moment we had the conversation to we're standing in Thailand in the jungle with a helicopter above us filming the scene we were talking about. That's what you, it's a marathon and it's a brawl. You have to, you have to just know, you have to have the commitment and, and, Trust me, there were a lot of dark days in between here and there, but that story needs to be told, and the veterans deserve it, and Pittsburgh deserves it, and so I think we finally accomplished what we were set to do. Well, as part of the hand of sand, the financing, because a film All like this can't yeah. be cheap. No, no, no. It's, uh, that's If you could just snap your fingers and have the financing, the rest of it's much easier. It's mobilizing enough people to get the film in a position where a financier will even consider it. So imagine... You're holding all that together, you know, by scotch tape, <laughs> and you're trying to find anyone who will, you know, respect your scotch tape ball of sand enough to say they'll finance your movie. I mean, it's, it's that absurd. I'm using a silly phrase, but that's the reality of it. Is it's any filmmaker is going to tell you, and you, and you could go talk to the biggest filmmakers in L.A. and how hard it was for them, to, or biggest filmmakers in New York. They're all going to tell you how hard it is to get any film made because it's true. It's there are too many moving parts. As a painter, I fully understand executing a painting. I know how I can sit down and do it. I don't need permission. And writers will tell you the same thing. Writers don't need permission to write. They can do it, and there's no infrastructure to make that happen except a computer. Making a film requires so much infrastructure and effort and 
synchronicity and it, it's it's a concert of a million moving parts all right I'm, I'm trying to get my hand around organization now is this a solo works film no no so this this actually is not because it's now you know evolved into alliance gate and roadside attractions deal so the the, the little production companies that started i mean I'm, I'm a producer on the film and and the producers who you know really carried this for a long time are still producers but when they're credit cell and the companies that's a different animal you know when you get into this world and todd is director he is writer and director yeah okay yeah all right so you're assembling this handful of sand and i, and I <laughs> love right. that i love i love that image yeah, right I, that's the truth yeah. I, I love i love that image who is making the pitch to the potential angels or backers Not you yeah i mean i'm involved in it but anybody and everybody involved in it you have to it's wildcatting for oil. You're you're hitting every you know spot of ground you can but put a it, drill in. But you is know? it you and Todd, or is yep. it Christopher Plummer says, "Hey, I'm looking. I'm part of this new film," and he pitches it somebody too, or could be. It could not. It wasn't and specifically with with Mr. Plummer, who uh, he came in a little bit later in the process. But but yes, when you have someone like that, and you have Ed Harris talking to people about it, and you have Samuel Jackson, or you have William Hurt, or any anyone, any, any of these incredible actors that it, the you know the world admires, it was surreal sitting there with them and having you know after watching watching this you know you plant a seed and you wait 15 years for it to grow, it was it was an unbelievable thing to witness. But yes, when they're involved in they endorse something they endorse a script or an idea or what have you of course that that gives it life you know filmmakers you know i mean nobody knows who i am it doesn't really matter if i go in and talk to somebody if they like the idea that's great but if you add in the elements of somebody like ed harris or whatever that changes the discussion you know no matter how great your story is and how heartfelt it is and that's just the those are just the hard knocks of the business. You know, it's it's a right. business to the okay. to the financiers. And you're still in the best. I mean, you've moved back to Columbia now. Mm-hmm. Well, we shot half this movie in Atlanta, so it's been you know I've been here. You know, I mean, I've obviously traveled, but so are you are you going to stay based home or are you moving back west? I'm just going sort of going back and forth as I need to at the moment. There's so many things are shot in Atlanta. The next film we're looking at doing isn't going to be shot in Atlanta, so it's a it's just kind of a. Okay. Again, you never know. Well, I just think it's always interesting for hometown boys. I'm going to I'm going to be here as much as I can. Yeah, I have a three year old girl, so that's okay. important to me that her life is is positive and and I think that Columbia is a good place for. Her. I love it here. So. Okay, all right. Let's talk about our hero, William Pitsenbarger. He was from rural Ohio. That's right. Exactly. So he he is a hero of Ohio, and he is one of these uh, men who he truly. It was it was heroism and altruism in this sense, you know. He didn't know these men. He he made a a conscious decision that his captain really didn't agree with to drop into the middle of this battle and to become a part of what was a nightmare of a day for these guys. Part of that was planned, and part of it wasn't because he right. dropped down, but then he was supposed to be picked up by another chopper, right. which got was shot at and right. pulled away and nobody else could come in so right. had things gone according to plan he would have been pulled out except he waved off the helicopter and they pulled the, pulled yeah. the wire pulled out. a wounded so, that's correct wounded guy out i think he was and based on what what you know the men on the ground have told me he knew what his likely fate was um not no, obviously not certain but it was he truly gave his life for these guys when he had a choice. The rest of them didn't have a choice. They were caught in an ambush and couldn't, they were there to fight through the battle. He was an only child. So when his father lost his only son, he spent the rest of his life trying to get get him the recognition. So the story, half the story that is about the Medal of Honor and what happened in that process, they, he was put up for the Medal of Honor at the time that was downgraded to an Air Force Cross. When the Internet came into being, these veterans began to reconnect. When, when If you talk to some of these the guys involved in the story, the veterans from Charlie Company and the Air Force veterans, when they tell you about it, they, well, it was a news to them that he didn't get the Medal of Honor. They, didn't, they went on with their lives from 1966, and they didn't know that he, they knew he was put up for it. They you know, made that effort, but they went about returning home some continued fighting in the war and life went on they reconnected and began to 
um, began to figure out, okay, how do we go and try to correct this and to get Mr. Pittsburgh what he believes his son deserves? Okay, and, and I think we need to mention at this point that we're talking about a specialist fourth class, E4, a specialist, yes, you know, he's a power rescuer, mm-hmm. but he's not in an infantry unit. He eventually becomes the first enlisted airman to get the Medal of Honor. So you, that's part of what you're dealing with in right. terms of military bureaucracy. I mean, yeah, he's a brave guy. Yeah, I'm just thinking about the chain of command and what, well, he was just in E4, yeah, but he's got he's got the Air Force Cross. Right. Right, so that exactly, and we see in the in the end credits, you will we break down how unique this was, in terms of you know you're exactly right, enlisted men and and what he this what this award meant really. So if you if you look at the arc of what happened and the in the timing of that and how he it, part of the story is about Whit Peters, who was the Secretary of the Air Force, who's an incredible guy. We interviewed Secretary Peters, and he was a big supporter of the film and helped us through the entire process over years. Um, so his, uh, as he's played by Linus Roach in the movie. Linus Roach is a brilliant actor who everyone pro- probably knows from Law and Order or Vikings. He's an incredible actor. You, if you Google him, you recognize his, his face. He's a wonderful actor and a tremendous guy. He plays Whit Peters. So Secretary Peters was very instrumental in in, in the interview we did with him, he, he said this was the most important thing he did as Secretary of the Air Force, was was writing this wrong and getting this. And so he was under the Clinton administration. He was he was the man overseeing this. So it was about Mr. Pitts and Barger and, um, and the veterans coming to Secretary Peters and explaining, and explaining their view of this and what happened. And they said, you know, Mr. Pitts and Barger has cancer and this needs to corrected before he dies, which it was, and he died soon thereafter. So it, it was the what this meant to these veterans and what this meant to Secretary Peters, and you will see these interviews as time goes on and this footage is out there with, with the film. It's, it's, it's moving in, you know, in every sense of the word, and this, you know, men talking about the human condition, talking about a war, talking about what they went through, talking about what they did to try to make some right of this. You know what they saw as, you know, a man who who gave his life, the only son of a man they respected, and it's it's powerful stuff. Julian, we need to pause for a moment. Let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking with Julian Adams about an upcoming movie, Last Full Measure. Julian, when I first you and I first talked about this a while back, and then I went and researched it. And since we're dealing with the mid-1960s, he died in 66, very early in the Vietnam War. Right. But he had tried to enlist before that. So I went back and looked at the first few segments of Burns's Vietnam, not so much about the war, but America in 1963, 1964, 1965. Uh, yeah, that's the world I grew up in. I'm Davidson class of 65, but what a what a different world that was, you know, with respect to the military, with how people felt about their country, with how they felt about joining up. And, of course, Burns talks about the boys from small towns who felt like it was their duty. But in this case, Pitsenbarger tried to enlist while he was still in high school. Right. As a Green Beret. Right. And his parents wouldn't let him. Because he was underage, they had to sign off, and they, and they wouldn't do it. But then he does when he's he does enlist in the Air Force, right? And we and you 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 see this in the film. We we cover some of that in the flashbacks of, of when he went to his father to talk about enlisting, and um, and how his father viewed it, and um, and Christopher Plummer, obviously in the in the sort of current day, the more contemporary part of the film, uh, his performance is um, it'll break your heart. I mean to see you know. A man struggling with his only son, uh, going off to war, and and knowing the risks that that he ended up having to face uh, ultimately, you know, with the loss of his son, and and um, then what his, what the rest of his life was like, and how he viewed this endeavor, and, and his admiration for these veterans who survived the battle, many of whom survived thanks to his son's actions, coming back to him and trying to correct course and. And William Hurt is a big part of that arc of the arc of the story, and Ed Harris and Samuel Jackson and John Savage and Peter Fonda, these incredible actors, and to watch them 
you know, they and they had many conversations. We sat down and they met with with the veterans and they had, you know, in-depth conversations with Ken Alderson and Fred Navarro and and the men who fought in the battle and Johnny Libs and these guys. And so they they had deep conversations with these men to understand their perspective on what they did not only in the battle but in their effort 34 year 32 to 4 years later because it took a long time to, to, this wasn't a, an easy uh, process in terms of once they engaged with the Pentagon that was a very difficult process because they exactly what you said a few minutes ago well, they got the air force cross so their their argument was we understand that but we're not stopping we're going to we're going to see this through because he was put up for the medal of honor and they they had to make their case they they had to make their case you know about why it should be upgraded tell us about the role sebastian stan plays mm-hmm. in the in the film he is he's you know kind of a, an amalgamation of of a few different uh, real life people who were crucial in that effort so he plays a character named Scott Huffman, who is, you know, basically is the driving force behind, you know, going to these veterans to try to get to new information to lobby the secretary to, to help them in this effort to get the medal, the medal for which he'd been passed up. So Sebastian Stan does a, a beautiful job at capturing, because he understands that this father, and he's a father himself, the character in the story. So he, as a young father, is is. You know his interaction with Christopher Plummer, who was a father who lost his only son. It's it's about that dynamic in terms of of kind of this this human story, the story of love and the story of caring for your family. And this is a young guy who's a Pentagon kind of up and comer. At first, he's 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 an unwilling participant. He doesn't he understands that this is this could he could get bogged down in this, and his career could be negatively impacted. But he picks up the sword and goes on this journey with these, with these men to try to right this wrong. So, and Sebastian is great. He's a wonderful guy and he does, and his performance is, um, is, is worthy of the story. One of the things that I found intriguing is the fact that the civilian world had recognized this hero before the military. I mean, the military did, the Air Force Cross, mm-hmm. because when he's put in for the Medal of Honor, if that award for which he's recommended doesn't happen, he gets the next. Right. So that's why he got the Air Force Cross. Obviously, the local folks in Ohio had had named things for him, but the Air Force has a number of buildings named for him. Did that happen before or after he was, after he got the Medal of Honor? Do you know? I well, I know that some of them happened after. I know we went to the unveiling of a statue. We had well, we actually had a crew there, filmed, interviewed many of the veterans uh, at Kirtland Air Force Base. They put up a statue at Pittsburgh, and another one has been in the works. But I couldn't tell you about all of them. I know that prior to the medal being awarded, I, I believe there was at least one building name for him. That I, uh, if I'm correct, but I, I don't know the dates on some of those. But he is he is a hero in that world. He is the one. If you go and talk to the PJs. They, that the story of Pittsburgh is always in the discussion. And see, this is what is interesting. When you think of the Vietnam War, and again, I'll refer to the to the Burns series. Uh, you think about the Army, the Marines, the Navy pilots. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Air Force is there. They're flying and they're dropping the bombs. You don't think of the in the early years. It was the Air Force that was the rescue for right. And that so we we had a, a PJ from Vietnam who's in a, who's an amazing man now and was then named John Pagini. And John came to Thailand with us and was on the ground as the PJ, you know, a former PJ who was, you know, fought in Vietnam, advising us on everything that we did, you know, every every mechanical move, every medical move, everything we did that was depicting Pittsburgh's actions in the battle, from the litter to the wire to the whole thing. John was the guy, you know, helping us craft that and direct it. Um, they're kind of an unknown commodity or what have you. And well, they are, but yeah. you know, I'm just fascinated by the fact that all too often, I don't want to make too big a generalization, Hollywood doesn't care about the, the details too much. Right. But it seems like you all are very concerned about everything really had to be to the T. You, you, know, you dotted every I, what have you. We did. You, you do everything you can. It is impossible, to, and you know this watching watching historical movies. You always get criticisms of it's, it's such an imperfect science. You cannot make it real life. And I'm not excusing flaws and the mistakes that I've made in movies, the mistakes that every filmmaker will make. 
But if you understand, you know, the, the, just getting it about 90% right is next to impossible. Being perfect is impossible, but you have to do your best to get there. And on this film, we were using real helicopters that were used in Vietnam. But there's only one or maybe two flying Huskies in the world. And we were shooting this in Thailand, so we had to use a Huey. We couldn't get a Husky to fly through the jungle in Thailand. It just was never going to work. So anyway, point is, is that we're gonna, we will get criticized a little bit because we're using a Huey and not a Husky. But it's okay because the story is about these men. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the helicopter may not be perfect. But in the, in the end, you do the best you can to make it as accurate as you can possibly make it. Okay. And you had those folks on the ground as part of the crew, the veterans. Yes. Oh, yeah. They were here the whole time. They were with us the entire time because they had to map out the battle force. We went, you know, through every detail, every maneuver, where, you know, where the attacks happened, where the battle began, how it ended. You know, when they circled the wagon, we did the best we could to make it as accurate as, as we could for them within the bounds of the finances of the film. It's, you know, you look at any film and you wish that whatever event in the film could be as great as you hope it to be. But the reality is that money is going to dictate the scope of anything, whether that's, you know, the size, the number of actors, the weapons, the whatever, mechanical devices, the vehicles, whatever. It's all dictated by money. So you have to you have to create this, you know, visual art and, you know, within the bounds of what you have. And I think we accomplished something really effective, and I think it's it's amazing, really. In the end, I, th- I think we, with the ammunition we had, I think we did a, did a pretty fair job. In general, when uh, in terms of time, when when will the film be released? March, roughly. March 2019. Okay. Yes, it'll be it'll be March April, but it, yes, I mean it, okay. I, I'm giving you a little bit of a window. Well, why don't yeah. we say it'll be released in the spring of 2019? Perfect. So where is it going to premiere? I know we'll have a premiere in Los Angeles, and we're talking to the military about a, play, a way to do something that involves, obviously, uh, the military. And that that has to be done in concert with the d- distribution company and how all that works out. But we have had the military involved the entire way through this, and we want them to complete the journey with us. So we don't know exactly the dates of the premiere and whatnot, but we're in that process right now. Well, that would be an, an especially neat way to have it done because there's some major Air Force bases in in Ohio. The right. base where he trained in Texas. Right. That's. I, I think that's really neat that you're going to tie that, tie that in. Right. And we and as I was saying, it, you know, if I know the PJs well because I've spent the last decade plus studying, you know, their accomplishments, and and so I know well what they do. But as you touched on a few moments ago, it, to try to summarize it, you know, everyone now knows what Navy SEALs are. They they know they understand that world because the media is in books and television, film. Has really taken a hold of that, and obviously, you know, for various events in the past you know, decade, um, the, the PJs are that for the Air Force. They are elite fighters who are also medics. So I want to be clear to say that you know, they deserve. I, I hope this film will will put some light on who they are because they deserve it. And the Men of Charlie Company, it, you know, this is about them. Whatever the case may be about what I did, I'm here as a messenger to tell their story. It's, you know, so we stuck with it for so long for that reason. I think if this story had been, you know, a, a piece of fiction that it wasn't about, you know, these men, I, I don't know if any of us would have made it the the decade plus run. I, I think that what drove it and what kept us, you know, in the in the hunt was um, for these men that survived this and experienced this and real life is much more valuable than, than a film and I, they deserve their story to be told and I I love movies and I appreciate movies and I think they're an excellent device and artistically I love it and I'm an artist and that's what I give my life to but in the end you have to understand that there's something more important going on here and this is getting this done for these, these veterans that's, they deserve it well, talking about the veterans, one of the sobering statistics now is that of the more than two million men and women who actually served in country in Vietnam, only about a third of those are still alive. Uh, I can speak to that directly. These friends, these men that have become friends of mine, Marty Crow was one of the lieutenants in the battle, and Marty helped us 
through this through the process of trying to get this film made, the life rights and all the all the details and the paperwork and the billions of contracts and and everything else that goes on. And Marty was a hero, and and Marty died years ago, and it broke my heart. And then Hal Salem, the helicopter pilot, you know, Pittsburgher and and Dale Potter and Jerry Hammond, that was the crew guys. I know, I know Dale Potter, and he, he's an amazing man. But these guys, they're they're. Hal Salem died, and we I couldn't tell him we were getting the film made. You know, I just. Well, the, the battle itself. Let's walk through that for our, for our listeners. Sure. We're talking Eastern 1966. Mm-hmm. And this, I can tell you how it started. They were in the church service. They were having their church service in the field, and the priest was. They were having an Easter Sunday church service, and three Viet Cong opened up on them. So Phil Hall, who is a friend, took out a—and Johnny Libs took out their weapons and fired a grenade launcher at him and an M16 and killed two of them. The third one they wounded, but he got away. So then the whole company took off after him because they knew they were heading into into a fight. All right, so this, fight. This, this is 8 or 9 o'clock in the morning. Right. Okay. All right, so they take off after them, mm-hmm. going into the jungle, and they're under attack pretty much from the time they get into the jungle, right? Yes, that's right. Okay, all right. Pittsburgher drops down in the afternoon. Right, they had been they had been in the fight for a while, and it was separated. If you talk to Phil, who was in you know one position, he did. They were they were hit by they don't know how many. They estimate between seven and eight hundred North Vietnamese. Regulars, I think it was the D-800, I think it was a battalion, and Viet Cong. What they, what surprised them the most is that they were not only hit from the ground, but from above heavy caliber machine guns that they had. So they were prepared. This was a, a <laughs> this wasn't, a, you know, a random, you know, convergence of two armies. This was, they, they were lured into a trap. So those heavy caliber machine guns had to be hoisted and tied into the trees that the, the Viet Cong had up there in the North Vietnamese Army. So once they were in it, they were separated into pockets. And so they, they fought in pockets for hours until they were able to call in, you know, help So and, and try to get men triaged and everything. All right. And so the, this is late afternoon when Pitts and Marker pair, uh, drops in. I, I believe, yeah, yes, later. Okay, that's right. And the battle goes through the night. He's killed during the night. Correct. Uh, and then the survivors are reinforced or rescued the next day. Yes, yes. So there. So and also the, some of the north. You know, obviously the 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 bulk of the North Vietnamese Army, of the battalion had either been killed or pulled out. It was savage. It was savage. And they and every one of them will tell you that. Um, Israel Pacheco, who I spoke to on the phone, he was one of the, he was a, a sharpshooter, a sniper, in the battle. And he and I spoke on the phone for the first time a number of years ago. I met a lot of them for the first time in person when we filmed the Medal of Honor scene in Atlanta. So we had all these big actors in the helicopters and the hangar, and in the audience, mixed in with all the actors, are my friends, the real guy, the the real soldiers, mm-hmm. some of whom I'd spoken to for ten years on the phone, you know every week or two. It was very emotional. You know, I saw these guys for the first time. Well, you mentioned the hangar. The actual ceremony took place at the Air and Space Museum. That's correct. And yeah. the veterans were there. Absolutely. H- hundreds and of That's right. PJ, hundreds of PJs. Hundreds of them. And, the guy, and so we had in the film, you will see the PJs sitting in the front row, the real guys. Well, so mixed in with our great actors mm-hmm. are the men who fought the battle. Well... It's, it's an incredible story. What's next for Julian Adams? It's <laughs> a good question. We have a couple of great ideas that we're working on, but I, I remember we met last time. I specified one of them, and I think that was a mistake because it never got made. So you have to you, you have to realize that in hindsight, I mean, hindsight is 2020, hey, of course, we, but... We, we'll, not, we'll not snake bite your future. Maybe it will. I don't know. I do, exactly. I don't want to snake bite them. But, uh, you know, I... I believe in the ones we're working on, and I think we've got some good things in the works, and um, it'll take a little time. But but uh, well, this film, I believe, each film has has progressed, you know, in terms of the the scope and the exposure. Um, so I, I think this one will do good things, and I think it's got a good a story well, that needs to be told. Like I said, in looking at SolarWorks website, 
I was intrigued by Phantom. Yeah. The story the, of the of the Russian submarine. Right. And we've got a few minutes left. Yeah. How did you get into that project? Well, it's interesting. Ken Sewell is a is a former submariner. He's an American great guy and a writer, and he wrote a great book on um, on the K one twenty nine and what happened on that Russian submarine that, in essence, was looking to start the Third World War. And really, people don't know about this story unless you're kind of in there in that world or you've read a lot of... But Howard Hughes, I'm cutting to the chase here because I know we have sh- we're short on time, but when the, when the K-129 blew up, Nixon sent Howard Hughes to go scoop the submarine up so we could get Russian technology, which was... His idea was for him to do it in secret... There's only one guy who could do it without one. He had, you know, getting, uh, you know, the, the financial approval from Congress. So Hughes built the Glomar Explorer, which is still a ship that's in operation today. So Howard Hughes went out and scooped up the submarine. So we got Russian technology, and obviously we picked up the sailors and contacted the Russians, and they denied the event that the, one of their sub, nuclear submarines had, or submarines that had a nuclear weapon on it had blown up in the Pacific, and. We said, well, then tell us what to do with your Russian sailors. So ultimately, they were they were sent back, et cetera. So anyone who knows the story well will, will know the the you know little nuances of those diplomatic events. So we thought that the story was fascinating and kind of really one that didn't that didn't have a lot of uh, exposure in popular culture. I mean, this is quite an event. The Third World War was you know you know I mean I don't know if it's a Cuban Missile Crisis but it's this was serious stuff <laughs> so so we were looking at this Russian submarine uh, Foxtrot class submarine in Long Beach so we were down there one day looking at the submarine and thought you know we could shoot a movie on this and so we researched kind of Russian submarine stories and and it just so happened that there was another Russian submarine, another Foxtrot class in San Diego. So we, it was odd, it's odd. There are two of the exact same type of Russian submarines in California. They're, they're museum pieces, and they're fascinating, and they're tiny. I spent a long time in one, so I've, I've gotten to know it well. So we, uh, basically, really the how it got going was exactly what you were talking about earlier. We talked to Ed Harris, and we said, Ed, you know, this is a story we're trying to kind of get off the ground. We don't really know what we're doing with it yet. And so we put a story together, and that had, you know, all of its foundations in the real story of the K-129. And Ken Sewell was an advisor on it because he had written the book and he was a submariner and he could walk us through how what happened in this story. And, and in essence, they don't know what happened on board the submarine. What they believe happened is that the captain knew that the KGB was up to something nefarious so that he, in order to stop them from launching a nuclear missile at Hawaii, he blew the submarine up and killed everybody, including himself. So we built a film around that. So Ed plays plays the captain, and David Duchovny played the KGB uh, operator. And we have a great cast of the other guys in it. Are uh, William Fickner uh, plays the, the uh, one of the first lieutenants, and and it's just a great cast. And Jonathan Sheck and a million guys, Lance Hendrickson. You'd recognize everybody in the movie if you saw it. We we built a really good cast and went on this Russian submarine, and everybody bumped their heads for three months and got the movie made. <laughs> but it um. It was quite a quite a thing. I mean, we able we were able to shoot it economically because we shot it on a submarine. I mean, once you get inside a submarine with a film crew and and uh, a couple of cameras, you can accomplish a lot. It was fast. But we had a nice release, and it, it came out in 2013. But um, but it's great. And Ed's performance in it. I mean, you get in the submarine with Ed Harris and the camera. Good stuff's happening. <laughs> well, and and uh, you did that musical video. Yeah, we did a bunch of music videos and a music documentary, and we've had a good time with you know. Those things are, you know, documentaries. I love, I love documentaries. There, um, because there's less pressure on your time frame, and your, you kind of have a broader creative window. You you can craft a story in a different way. Really, the crafting of a documentary is really in your editorial process, and the shooting is a different thing. It's less complicated to shoot in many ways, obviously, um, but it's it's a different animal. We've done a lot of those things that that um, I, I think. It's a the pressure and the pace is different. It's a difficult task because it takes a long time to edit a documentary versus a, a feature film. A narrative has a scripted, you know, you're you're moving, you know, through a scripted plan. You know what the next scene is as you're editing, and that changes, of course. And because a film on paper versus when you shoot it to when you get to the edit, it's going to change many times in terms of the story. A documentary really is sort of a different. 
you know, the process of making it is very different. In the end, your editorial holds a lot more uh, weight. Well, I hate this. Alfred's giving me the wind-up sign. Julian, any last words before we sign off? I think you're doing a good service uh, for um, creative people, and I, I appreciate what you're doing. I think that is, that, you know, it is um, to go out and fight in the in the creative world is a difficult thing. So I appreciate the uh, time you give it. Hey, look, we're both good liberal arts college majors. Right. Uh, products. I mean, right. <laughs> we can do anything, right? <laughs> we'll see. Tell me after you see the movie. I don't know. <laughs> okay, Julian Adams. It's been a pleasure having you in the journal today. Thank you, Dr. Edgar. I appreciate it very much. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. I've enjoyed talking with Julian Adams over the years as he moved from South Carolina to the West Coast and became involved in Hollywood, knew him from his first film. This particular story resonated with me on a number of levels. It's a fascinating story. It's an American story. And a young man from Columbia, South Carolina, helped make it happen. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.